Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered, the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode... It's fascinating how the claims do follow trends. We saw like a wave of sextortion attempts. I think it was either last year or the year before where hundreds and thousands of companies and individuals were being sent pretty much identical emails purporting to be from somebody who had recorded the individual watching porn and basically blackmailing them. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC and in each episode I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Daniel Rifat of Hiscox with us, and our topic will be cyber insurance. Now, in 2016, after a career as a lawyer, uh, first at Bird and Bird and then at my firm, RPC, uh, Daniel moved to Hiscox, where she is currently a specialty claims manager in media, tech, and cyber. And it will be cyber that we're focusing on today. So, Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Hi. As I've just mentioned, before joining uh, Hiscox, you were uh, a lawyer. So talk to us about that for a little bit. What did you specialize in and, and how did that lead to you moving to Hiscox and accepting your current role? Sure. So um, like most people, I don't think I thought I'd be ending up in insurance, um, as, as glamorous as it is. So um, I actually started my career as a commercial litigator at Bird and Bird. Um, and uh, after a few years there, I realized that I actually had a really great interest in, in media litigation. So um, I decided to specialize in, in that area. So things like defamation, privacy, and, and basically defense work for most of the, uh, the major newspapers and broadcasters in, in this country and abroad. So I joined um, RPC's media litigation team. <laughs> well done, well done. Um, yes, it was a good decision. Um, and um, yeah, and so I was I was specialised in that area when I first came across insurance, and I'd done pretty much zero insurance work before that point. Um, so I started acting for some media insurers and, and their insureds when I was actually at um, RPC, and um, the opportunity came up to do a secondment at Hiscox. And uh, my, my first reaction was kind of puzzlement, I think. Because <laughs> I, <laughs> I thought, oh, okay, uh, I've not really thought about this before. And um, I was very sort of happy doing doing the work that I was doing at that time. But I took the opportunity and, and it kind of changed kind of the course of my career, I'd say, because I did go back to RPC after my secondment. But then when a permanent opportunity came up, I decided to, to leave private practice and, and go to Hiscox on a permanent basis. We're here to talk about cyber uh, insurance and kind of first and foremost, could you explain to us uh, in very general terms what cyber insurance is, is intended to do? So it's, it's basically there to cover businesses um, and individuals in, in some instances from their exposure to, to cyber incidents and, and data incidents. So by cyber incidents, I mean things like ransomware attacks. So you come into work one day and find that all of your systems have been encrypted by cyber criminals and you can't access any of your data and um, you know you've received a ransom demand saying that unless you pay X, you're going to lose all that data permanently. Other things that cyber policies are there to cover, so other kind of cyber incidents are things like um, business email compromise, where hackers use things like phishing attempts. So they'll send an email purporting to be from kind of a trusted organization and uh, they're basically phishing for credentials. So they want you to give them their username and their password. They get that information from kind of a duped employee 
And then they managed to get into that employee's mailbox, sit in there for sometimes months, um, all with a view to committing payment diversion fraud. And then you also have at the other end of the spectrum, things like employees leaving a laptop on a train. So it's kind of human error on one end of the scale and then organized crime at the other end of the scale that the policy is there to help you with. And social engineering is a phrase that I've heard, but what's social engineering in this context? So social engineering is is usually where um, criminals will gather publicly available intelligence. So let's say you go onto Hiscock's website and you find out who is our CFO, et cetera, et cetera. And they then will engineer an email, which appears to be legitimate. But if you look more closely, for example, at the, um, at the email address, you'll see that it's actually it's spoofed. And they will send an email to someone within the organization saying, you know, this is from your CFO. Please pay this invoice. Uh, this needs to be paid immediately and put pressure on someone, for example, in accounts to, to make a payment that doesn't exist in, in a legitimate sense. So it's basically going off to, again to a fraudulent account. So social engineering is very much reliant upon people kind of being pressured into making payments and not necessarily scrutinizing emails or just picking up the phone and checking to make sure that, that that email is legitimate. And what sort of losses um, does a, a cyber policy cover? Is it is it primarily a, a first party loss one or, or a third party loss policy? So I think cyber policies are pretty unique in that they cover both um, and they are so wide in, in scope. Cyber is a mix of first party in so far as things like legal investigation costs, for example. Let's say you find out that you you come in and you find that um, your systems have been encrypted by ransomware. In that scenario, you're going to need to appoint a whole host of experts to help you, obviously, to, to navigate, get you back into the position you were in. So those costs we would deem to be first party losses because you're you know you're incurring those losses a to mitigate against kind of potential claims, I suppose, and b because you have to from a regulatory stance. So you've got those costs. You've also got business interruption losses, which again, we would class as a first party loss. So if, for example, you know your systems are down and you can't do business because you, your systems have been encrypted and that runs for a significant period of time, that, that is going to be um, potentially a big loss to a business. So that loss is covered. So in relation to third party losses, um, the policy is designed to cover mainly privacy related claims. So if you're, you know, you suffer a big data breach and a number of data subjects come after you looking to claim, that's the sort of thing that your policy be there to cover the cost of defending that action, settling that action, paying damages, et cetera, in the way that you would expect to see cover under, say, a PI policy for that kind of thing. Yeah. And the ransom for ransomware, the ransom itself, that would be a first party loss, presumably. That's a first party loss. Yeah, exactly. And 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 whether or not we pay ransoms is is kind of hugely dependent on the situation. But we take advice usually from our cyber forensics experts on whether it's prudent to pay the ransom in the circumstances. Because sometimes, for example, the insured won't have any backups available or their backups have been encrypted. And to actually reconstitute all of the data is, you know, going to be going to be tricky. So we obviously we're, where we we try to avoid paying the ransom wherever that's possible. I, I, I can put that because presumably it, 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 the more ransoms are paid, the more it's going to be encouraged. Exactly. The, the ABI, as I understand it, according to my research, has, has estimated that the cost of a cybersecurity breach for a big company um, is between sort of six hundred k and and one point one five million, and for a small company is um, 
kind of a hundred thousand ish. So, and you know, I also understand that there was one ransomware attack on a, on a Danish company that cost them ninety five million dollars. So, it's I mean, we are you know we are potentially talking about really sizable losses here, aren't we? Yes, that's right, and and it's hugely variable. But from our SME perspective, you could be looking at something like. 10 to 20 grand for a very straightforward breach where, you know, uh, I don't know, an employee has, has um, you know, left a, a laptop on a train and you just need to get some legal advice. And then there are then um, cyber incidents of varying severity. So state, take the mailbox compromise example that I was talking about. If you had a number of mailboxes affected, you could be looking at, you know, tens of thousands of pounds, if not upwards towards six figures in terms of the cost of dealing with appointing lawyers, the cyber forensics, notifying data subjects, um, paying for credit monitoring for those data subjects. Uh, then you might get claims in and you're going to have to deal with the claims. And so I'd say that, you know, that, that six figures anywhere, anywhere from early six figures right up to seven figures potentially is not uncommon in more serious breaches. So could you talk us through some uh, examples of uh, cyber attacks that you've seen? And I appreciate here that you obviously can't name names, um, but uh, one or two examples just to sort of put some colour on cyber policies. Yeah. So we've seen quite an uptick in what are known as MajCart attacks, exploiting Magento sites. So Magento is um, an open source e-commerce platform. So a lot of the retailers that you and I shop with, when we're entering on our card details, we are using um, a Magento platform to do that. And um, we had quite a serious case last year involving a very, very large retailer where their Magento platform was hacked by um, a group called Majcart. So what they did in this instance, and this is again... I'd say that I, I haven't got a percentage figure, but a lot of our, the incidents that we see all start with a phishing attempt. So in this instance, they basically managed to get hold of an employee's credentials for Slack, which is an instant messaging service. Yeah, yeah. And, and they, they did that by virtue of phishing attempts. They, they sent an email asking for kind of password and, and username. They got that. They got into Slack, exploited Slack, and managed to gain access to the back end of the website and were able to insert malicious JavaScript code onto the Magento platform page, basically, and to change the payment pages in that way. So they, they gained unauthorized access effectively into the insurance web server. And what they did, they you go to pay for um, an item online, you enter in all of your card details and your address, all the rest of it, and then you hit submit. As the um, consumer, all that would happen, all that you would see is that the page would refresh. And you'd think, oh, that's weird. Um, it clearly hasn't gone through. Let me re-enter them all. And what's actually happened is that you were, um, the hackers have actually kind of captured, it's a, it's a fraudulent page. They take that de those details away and then store them in a file um, and then exfiltrate the data at a later date and either use it to commit credit card fraud or sell it to fraudsters on the dark web. But I think the genius of this is that the retailer doesn't really know anything has happened because they're still getting their orders in from their consumers um, and sending out products. The consumer doesn't know anything has happened because they're getting, you know, they put their order in and they get their products. 
So it's only at the point at which you realize that your card has been defrauded that you then potentially that the card issuer can join up the dots. If they've got a number of, of customers whose cards have all been defrauded and it all goes back to one website, the, the common denominator. So you have had a data breach because the bad actors have basically gained unauthorized access to a load of personal data that you hold. Um, and so you need to notify the regulator. You need to notify the data subjects potentially. All of this is done kind of using um, lawyers to, to advise you on exactly what should be said. In this case, it was multi-jurisdictional. So they had consumers in different jurisdictions, including in the US, where you have different regimes per state. And then you've also got the card industry, uh, the payment card industry to, to deal with. So they require all kind of retailers who um, are suspected to have suffered an attack like this one to carry out an investigation, which the organization that's affected has to fund. And then you, the organization, have to pay a fee to compensate the payment card industry for that fraud. And, and then on top of that, you've got all of the PR problems. And as you can imagine, it's hugely time consuming and expensive to deal with. And that's not even thinking about the potential reputational harm and, and the business interruption losses that can be suffered as a result of that. And all of this stemmed from one person putting their, yeah. responding to a phishing attack and yeah. providing the fraudsters with their login for Slack. Their credentials. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Um, and, and that's, you know, that is so common in, in, in so many cases, it all boils down to an employee being duped. I mean, you do get, you get brute force attacks, which don't involve human fallibility in that way, but they're far less common than this type of phishing attack. So, so, so basically the, the main weakness as ever with these things is not really the computer as such, but it, it's, it's the, the human involvement. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, we, we would have avoided a huge number of planes over the last few years had you know, there've been, I suppose, better training potentially um, within organizations for employees to kind of spot phishing attempts. That is something that we are working with our insurers so that they are able to better educate their organizations on, on that kind of risk. Yeah. Although they are undeniably getting better, aren't they? I remember the early days of phishing, they were very obvious because the spelling was awful. From a lawyer's, from a lawyer's perspective, it was the lack of apostrophes that really upset me the most. <laughs> exactly. But now, I mean, I got one the other day, I got a text message from purporting to be from HSBC. It was really, it was, it was quite convincing um, that the trouble being that I don't bank with HSBC. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're definitely far more sophisticated, I think, than they used to be. Um, yeah. And it's, it's more of an industry now. The crime, that, that, that element is, is just a huge industry. Yeah. And, and the reality is, although we are all aware of it now, if, if the email comes in at a weak moment, and you know, you're exceptionally busy, it is extraordinarily easy just to press on it. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that that is something that kind of the COVID situation and working from home is potentially exacerbating. So, you know, you're not sitting next to your colleagues anymore and you're not, it's, it's much more involved, I suppose, rather than just turning around to someone and saying, hey, what do you think about this? You're more likely, I think, not to do that when you're not sitting in a room with somebody. Yeah, the, the the ransomware one is what which always fascinates me because obviously I, I've I've seen phishing attempts and I've hopefully avoided all of them, but the ransomware is something I haven't seen before, um, thankfully. 
So the way you described it is, you know, I, I or someone would just come into work one day and the, the screen would be frozen. But it'd be like the ones in the cinema where there's some, you know, the, the Joker is laughing at you or something like that. Yeah, it can be. <laughs> yeah, it, it can be. So it's not not far off. Um, it's a pretty terrifying experience for any business to kind of sit to find themselves in that situation. But if you think about um, kind of businesses that don't necessarily have in-house IT functions, it's really quite a terrifying and I'd say quite crippling moment when you find that somebody has has basically stopped you from accessing all of your all of your data effectively. And what to do in that scenario is that's really where kind of the cyber policy comes into its own because if you I think spoke to an average small medium-sized business owner. In that situation, I think that it would be difficult for them to know who to go to and, and how to get themselves back up and running effectively. And presumably, these kind of issues need an urgent response. It's not something where you can hang around. So how do you go about organising that? And is it a 24-7 thing or, or how's it done? If an insured has a problem, what should they do? So I really think that's where kind of cyber insurance comes into its own because, yes, you're quite right. You have regulatory obligations that kick in. You've got 72 hours um, to notify the ICO when you become aware of the breach. So if you kind of picture the scenario where you realize something has gone wrong, where do you start if you don't have um, access to experts? So with Hiscox, we have a 24-7 hotline that you can call in the event of an incident. That will take you through to our cyber forensics experts, and we will very quickly pull a team together, which uh, will be there to what we call them kind of like the A team, probably. Uh, no copyright issues there. I love it when a plan comes together. Um, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So you've got a roster of experts who are doing this day in, day out, and who crucially work together in, in many cases. So they are completely used to dealing with this type of situation. So lawyers, cyber forensics experts, PR consultants, and of course, you've got your kind of in-house claims handlers um, at Hiscox, who again are a specialist and they're doing nothing but cyber, basically. And all of those forces can come together very, very quickly, you know, within hours to advise you on what do you need to do. And the things that we'd expect organizations to be thinking about, obviously, how do we get back up and running if we've been hit by something like ransomware? How do we contain the breach? How do we make sure the attackers aren't still in our systems? And then you've got all the legal considerations around who do we need to notify? You know, do we have customer obligations in terms of contractual obligations, all that kind of thing? And so the cyber forensics and the, the lawyers basically work side by side in providing that kind of seamless service. And 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 we, your insurer, are there to support you through that and be with you as a partner because it's an incredibly stressful time. And, you know, even for the most experienced general counsel, if you haven't dealt with this before, it is pretty daunting. Um, so, so, yeah, that's I'd say that the, that really is the, the, the edge that cyber policy can give. And silent cyber is a phrase that has, has cropped up in the past. What is silent cyber? So it's basically, um, it, it's where cover isn't being affirmatively given. So you haven't got what, what is effectively, this is a cyber policy or this is cyber cover. But the breadth of the insuring clause and the absence of exclusions creates potential cover for cyber-related claims. So, you know, typically you might see, I don't know, under a DNO policy, you've got investigations cover. Depending on the way that's drafted, it could be broad enough to cover um, investigations by the ICO, so the Information Commissioner's Office. But the problem with silent cyber is they're not written by underwriters with cyber in mind. 
And so you don't have the breadth of cover and all of the covers you usually have under a cyber policy, which all work together because they have been drafted in a way that thinks about what happens in a cyber incident and all of the types of loss and exposure an insured might suffer. So it's kind of bits and pieces, which is far from ideal. So are there still a lot of policies being written at the moment that, that effectively include silent cyber? Or, or is it a problem which is there's a far greater awareness of it and therefore actually is being avoided a lot more now? Yeah, I think that now, I think the market has has realised that there was this um, this potential kind of scope of coverage where it wasn't intended. So I think as time goes on, we will see far, far less of it. And as people become more aware of cyber cover and are buying more cyber cover, I think it will it will become less and less of an issue. And in terms of pure standalone cyber policies, how long have they been around? Presumably they're pretty new. Longer than you might think. So uh, I think since the late mid-90s, cyber policies have been around, but they have evolved a lot since then. I think they started off out of the US, which is uh, unsurprising. And they were pretty much in, in that day driven by kind of privacy liability cover. And the focus on both the cover and kind of the types of attack they had in mind was credit card attacks and healthcare information. So since then, you can imagine the threat has evolved hugely. So the cybercrime market has expanded remarkably and more criminals are able to actually get in on the game because you can buy hacking as a service tools. You don't need the technical knowledge to, to do it. Whereas in the past, if you were trying to flog credit card information, well, that's going to take time to see returns, right? Whereas if you send out hundreds of thousands of ransomware attacks in minutes, people are going to buy. Some people are going to pay the ransom. So it's far more scalable and you're getting faster dividends. So the policies have evolved with that. I think in the UK, cyber policies became more mainstream in the early 2010s. And, and certainly my experience at Hiscox is when I joined about four or five years ago, cyber was a product and we were seeing claims on it. But the number of policies that we were selling and the number of claims we were seeing is just nothing like what we're seeing now. And I think I think a lot of that has been driven by GDPR as well. And we can't sort of underplay the importance that has had in terms of people's awareness of their data and, and the way that organizations are expected to respond to these kinds of attacks. Yeah, it's just one of those things which has hit the public consciousness, hasn't it? it exactly. In the same way that previously DNO was a rarity but is now commonplace, cyber was kind of everyone knows that they now have to have a standalone cyber policy. And as you say, for, for, for small businesses, it's, it is, well, it is probably their greatest business ending risk at the moment. Yeah. And you'd be surprised that there still isn't perhaps the awareness we would expect there to be, despite kind of the best efforts of governments, et cetera, because, you know, it's costing billions for this type of crime, particularly affecting small businesses. We don't have reliable stats as far as I'm aware in terms of who is, who is buying cyber. But I think um, the stats that I do have were, we think around 11% of businesses, this is about a year to 18 months ago, were buying cyber in the UK. Wow, is that all? Is that all, yeah. And, and, and maybe closer to 20% now. But if you think about, that's not just SMEs. If you think about SMEs, I think it's an even smaller proportion. But it is still, you know, hugely growing area. So you are seeing more companies buying year on year, month to month. And presumably policy wordings will uh, evolve as well. I say this without any technical knowledge at all, but I'm assuming that, 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 that you know, 5G, artificial intelligence, machine learning, 
kind of all of these things in the future will will create new risks as well, which policies will have to respond to. Yeah, and and cyber criminals are you know smart bunch. They are constantly thinking of new ways um, to exploit existing and, and new technologies. You know, it's fascinating how the the the, the claims do follow trends. So we saw like a wave of sextortion attempts. Um, I think it was either last year or the year before, where hundreds and thousands um, of companies and individuals were being sent pretty much identical emails purporting to be from somebody who had recorded the individual watching porn and basically blackmailing them. And we got tons of notifications on on that. And it was, you know, it, it ran for a few months and then it sort of fizzled out. But you know, you have to believe it's not one criminal behind that. There's a, there's a number of them, and and they all kind of they do they do follow trends, strangely enough. Anyway, it's lovely to hear that there's one business that's doing well at the moment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In that context, how has lockdown affected cyber claims? So we have seen claims volumes in cyber go up by about forty percent during the first six months of lockdown. But having said that, our book of business has also grown. But we definitely had claims with kind of a COVID flavour. So um, criminals have been quite fast to think about ways that they can exploit things like HMRC kind of emails about furloughs, so trying to get kind of information from people phishing in that, in that way. I think we've definitely seen that people who are working in furloughed teams are far more stretched and they're potentially not as vigilant as they were before. And, you know, you get the problem with certain people being on furlough and their email accounts not necessarily being manned. And then you can get kind of compromise of email accounts goes undetected much longer. And remote desktops is something that, you know, people working from home remotely, criminals are finding ways to exploit vulnerabilities within that RDP kind of situation. So, uh, so yeah, we've, we've definitely seen some, some new ways, I suppose, that criminals are up to their old tricks. All of that was absolutely fascinating. But one last question, uh, which is the question I ask everybody, which is uh, what piece of advice would you give someone who's interested in getting involved in in cyber insurance, so a a graduate or something like that who's who's interested in insurance? And what's the one lesson that you've learned over the years that you would pass on to them? I think be open-minded. So, um, you know, take opportunities where they arise and don't don't say no to anything. because you'd be surprised what you, you find interesting. You know, I, I, had you talked to me, I don't know, seven years ago, I think I would have been pretty slack-jawed if you said to me that I would be managing a, a team that deals with cyber at uh, an insurer. But it's definitely, um, if, you, if you approach things with an open mind, I think you'll find a lot of opportunities that could really interest you and, and be very satisfying. Absolutely. Dania, that was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and please rate, review and share it. It really does help. Please also listen to another of our podcasts, Taxing Matters, which is hosted by my brilliant colleague, Alice Kemp. Insurance Covered is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you and I hope you have a lovely day. 